Thank you very much, Bob and Vicki. You did good, Bob. Joanne and Jeff, is there an announcement for the picnic out there? There's an announcement for the next week, right? Next Sunday? Okay. Picnic, Tedelestai, Phalanx, picnic next week. The announcement is out there on the information table, as are the messages of Aaron and her. Brian said her. I want to explain that. In the Old Testament, we have the analogy, and I called Craig Aaron and Brian Hur, and it's H-U-R. The analogy was that during a battle with Amalek, the Amalekites, Moses was on a hill. As long as he held his arms up, the battle went for Israel. The battle went for the Lord. But when his arms got tired, the battle went for Amalek. So Aaron and Hur came and lifted the arms of Moses. Battle went for the Lord. And that is an indication that whenever the word of God is going forth and through whomever's mouth, the battle is in this generation going for the Lord in the sense that his grace, his kindness, his love is being manifested over and against the false tradition of an angry and vindictive and vengeful God over and against doctrines of demons like the doctrine of an eternal hell for immortal souls, which we are beginning to develop as a doctrine of demons, and it can be demonstrated both from the scriptures and from missionary experiences in the present day, the present era. The gospel of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ is going forward, but it's not going forward easily. It's going forward against great adversity. It's going forward against adversarial beings, including sin and death and the evil one. And we're very grateful. I'm very grateful for having the word of God spoken through gifted men like Brian and Craig, and I I told them I wasn't going to announce them coming to the pulpit because it's seamless now. It's a seamless thing. It doesn't matter, really, who's doing the speaking. Now, for the next increment of Romans, we're going to be considering Christ in three different roles, really. The first one is going to be called Christus Medicus. That's the Latin phrase. Don't be put off by it. Christus Medicus, Christ the physician, Christ or the Messiah, the doctor. The second, and this will probably fit in, is Christus Victor, Christ the victor. And the third will be Christus Faber. Christ the Builder, Christ the Builder, and I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or death, will not prevail against it. Christus Medicus is the one I want to begin with, and this has specific reference to Romans, the heart of it. We are going to be considering in this study the very beating, living heart of Romans, 
the very heart and center, not only of Romans, but of the entire Scripture. We'll be considering not the dead center, but the living center of the radical center of the gospel. And that, of course, always is Christ and him crucified with the understanding that crucifixion, his crucifixion is accomplished and done and it was followed by a glorious resurrection, exaltation, and present session at the right hand of the majesty of God the Father on high, which is important for us to pay attention to because that is a preview of our own destiny, which is even now in Ephesians 2.6, but then at his coming completely. We are seated together with him in heavenly places. And we are to be, along with all of creation, a trophy to his grace, his unconditional grace. Another aspect of this study, it will be the last judgment. And it will be my aim to depict the last judgment as an act of divine philanthropy, God's ultimate philanthropic act. Philanthropy from Titus 3, 4, the philanthropy of God. Phila for love, anthropos for mankind, God's love for mankind demonstrated in the last judgment. Far, far, in fact, infinitely far from the traditional notions and ideas of the last judgment being a damning judgment or a separating judgment in which God issues a catastrophe on his creation and God sends forth condemnation and damnation on the human race. This last judgment as a philanthropic and humane action of the God who loves all of humankind and all of creation will come into the subject, Christus Medicus, Christus Victor, Christus Faber. And how they work in Romans will, you may turn with me, in fact, to Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. And we will consider, as we've been seeing on Wednesdays, and even this past Wednesday and Thursday, we've been hitting both the left and the right flank of Romans, Romans 4 and Romans 13 to be precise. And we've studied the dynamic state of love which is God's desire for all of humankind. His approval is on a life that is described as a dynamic state of love in which faith works. Faith works by love, or this faith that works within the dynamic state of love in Galatians 5, 6. So that's the midweek. We're going to start concentrating on the center now, The center in Romans is a double center from Romans 5 through 8 and then Romans 9 through 11. It's a double center. It's one center, but it's kind of a double center. So we have the left flank, Romans 1 through 4, the right flank, 12 through 16. We have the double center, 5 through 11. But each section can be taken separately, 5 through 8 and 5 through 11. We're going to take a little bit from the left side of the center and then from the right side of the we could call it the left center in Romans 8 Romans 5 6 and then Romans 8 31 will be pinpointed 
But to introduce the subject of Christus Medicus, and again, I thank Brian and Craig for speaking because this gave me and afforded me a lot more time to develop this doctrine. It's very intricate, very deep, very involved, and it will involve an involved insistence on God's love as the principle of all of God's just actions. I will be developing an insistence that God's love is the principle or source of all God's acts of justice and, of course, of righteousness. Now, in Luke chapter 5 and verse 30, in many of these verses, you might want to note and look up yourself. It's always profitable to do so when I do passing reference. But Luke 5.30, the Pharisees and scribes were doing what they usually do in Luke's account, complaining. In this case, they complained to Jesus' disciples, and they demanded an answer from them for why they habitually ate and drank with tax collectors or toll collectors, better, tariff collectors, and sinners. And it was Jesus who overheard the complaint and answered the question for his disciples. And that is, in Luke five thirty-one to 32, he said to them, Those who are in good health have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, it means literally in the Greek, those who have it bad. And the word is kakos, K-A-K-O-S, which is also a word for evil or for sinfulness or degeneracy or e- evil behavior. Those who are in good health have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. And then Jesus said, I haven't come to summon the righteous. And he uses, if he could use air quotes, I'm sure he would there because the so-called righteous. But sinners to repentance. When Jesus calls sinners to repentance, he calls them to a divinely enacted change of thinking change of life, change of mentality, change of intentionality. It's affected by God. So here it is Jesus himself who equates sinfulness with sickness. It's not the first time in Isaiah 1.5, God himself, Yahweh, the God of Israel, diagnoses the condition of Judah and Israel at the time, and he said, The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint in Isaiah 1.5. So Jesus equates sinfulness with sickness here as he did as Yahweh of the armies in Isaiah. Here Jesus also identifies himself as the physician, Christus Medicus, which is our Latin term. And the sinners whom Jesus and his disciples were eating and drinking with knew they had it bad. They knew they were sick. They knew they were in need of a physician. The Pharisees and scribes were also sick, desperately so. As Jeremiah 17.9 also says, but they covered over their condition with a facade of rectitude, external observance of not just the Torah. In fact, it was external observance of commands that they made up and replaced Torah with, a facade 
kind of a band-aid that was about to be ripped away when they called for Jesus' death by crucifixion. That will show their true condition, their true sickness. Throughout Luke, the sinful condition is considered to be a sickness, and this is befitting Luke, who was, in fact, a physician, Paul's personal physician and friend. So throughout his gospel, the sinful condition is considered to be a sickness, and the cure is brought by Jesus. And this is extremely significant for reasons that will become apparent in the weeks to come for you and I. Because if Jesus came to heal the sickness of sin, and if Jesus came to deliver those who were enslaved to it, to deliver, to deliver and liberate those who were enslaved to it, then we must reconsider any notions that we have that is death for sinners was merely a penalty for sins. It's known in tradition as traditional theology as penal, P-E-N-A-L, substitution. It was rather the means of having the sickness of sin cured, healed. Now, the Greek patristic theologians, and I believe it was the Holy Spirit's intent to lead us into that with the researcher par excellence, Ilaria Romelli from the University of Milan, wonderful, wonderful book she did on the apocatastasis, the universal restoration. The patristic theologians, the Greek theologians who knew the Greek text of the New Testament, unlike the Latin fathers who departed from it, beginning with Augustine, and then Augustine was radicalized into what we now know as a system in which God is viewed as a vindictive and revengeful God. Some of the students of this philosophy include the Jonathan Edwards, whose message is famous, sinners in the hands of an angry God, a terrible way to view God because it's not biblical, it's not scriptural, it's not keeping with God's true character. God is love. The Greek patristic theologians, otherwise known as the church fathers in the eastern side of things, strongly emphasize the role of Jesus as physician and his death and resurrection as the healing of the human condition. Were they correct to do so? These men and women, one of them was named Melania, another, there were several women theologians, she was a prominent one. Were they close to the truth? Were they on target? Well, these patristic theologians, I think, were much closer to the scriptures because they were close to the Greek text, much closer than some of the so-called Latin fathers. And I studied this pretty intently in not being here for a couple of Sundays. This emphasis was overtaken eventually in the Latin Fathers and elsewhere by the idea of penal substitution in which Jesus' death was perceived as the appeasement of the wrath of a retributive and angry God. This, again, 
we're having to change our focus on the center of redemption, the cross of Christ. As we have changed our focus on the horizon or the sphere of impact of the cross and seen it to be universal. If you remember, and if you were with me back then, in our study of Revelation, which we called Rev the Book, in which we kind of revved the book, I asked a foundational question at the beginning of our study. And really the 513 hours that we spent together were in large part answering the question, is the justice of God retributive and punitive or is it restorative and transformative? We concluded that his justice is indeed restorative and transformative, even liberating. Some of us, me included, I can speak for myself, came to a kind of repentance. And by that, and God is always doing this, he's summoning me to repentance, to a change of thinking. If you've never changed your mind, you're not under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You may be under the delusion of traditionalism, but you are not under the transforming ministry of the Spirit. So I came, along with many others, of repentance, a a kind of repentance in that study, repenting of holding the notion of a retributive and vindictive God. And we began to treasure instead, I know I did, and do still, treasure the portrait of God of a restorative and transformative justice, adjusted a justice that's truly grounded in God who is love and has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Probably a better word and the expiation for our sins, the removal of them altogether. Our complicity with it, our slavery to it. Now, if God is not wrathful, but love, my question now is, then why would Jesus' death have to appease God's wrath? Does his death appease God's wrath, or does his death demonstrate God's love? We're going to see in the heart of Romans, God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. God didn't demonstrate his wrath. He demonstrated his love. Christus Victor. Why did he do so many healings? Why did he instigate so much relief of demon oppression? Because he was forecasting what he would do in a universal scale on Calvary's cross. Towards sin towards sinners. So this has now become important in considering the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in which we boast. As a judgment, and certainly the cross is a judgment, in fact, it is the proleptic picture of the last judgment. The last judgment will be a kind of a demonstration of what Christ already did at the cross. Put away sin. And in his resurrection, rectified all the human race. 
going to be a very surprising day for many people because it's going to be an astonishing display of God's universal mercy. And as it was in the days when people who were religious called for his crucifixion, it's going to be ripping away the facades of those who object to God's mercy because they really think people should get what's coming to them. Suum quique, get what you deserve. That's anything, if there's anything that's antagonistic to who God is, it's the idea of people getting what they deserve. Either way, whether it's condemnation or rectification, justification or condemnation. What has happened, and this is the most, this is really the citadel of our offensive attack. Human freedom of will has been exalted above God's saving will. And it has affected theology. It has affected almost every preaching of the gospel. Human freedom isn't the ultimate reality. Jesus Christ is the ultimate reality. God's will wills and wins out. God's will is a saving will, a salutary will toward mankind. God is the ultimate philanthropist. The last judgment will be God's definitive act of philanthropy which will be a kind of redo or a redepiction of his love demonstrated at Calvary for all of humankind. Now, another thing I would say in starting off this emphasis, the scripture does not say that God was so angry that he gave his son. The scripture says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We'll be getting into kind of a revision in a way of John's gospel of what it means to believe and not perish. To believe and not perish means to participate in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and have the life of the coming age now instead of perishing under the controlling power of sin. That will transform a little bit. It's just a little tweak, but it will transform our idea of John's gospel. So then, the scripture does not say that God was so angry that he gave his son, but that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God didn't send his son to save him from the father. Save us from the Father. If God's angry, then he sent his son to save us from himself. But we're going to find that as John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We're going to find that just as powerfully in Romans 5.6 and 8, while we were, Romans 5.6 says, asthenes, which means sick, but it means terminally. While we were terminally sick, 
Asthenes normally means weakness, but often it's equated with sickness. It's the incapacity and the debilitating inability that sin or that sickness afflicts us with. You can call it total depravity if you want, but it's man's radical incapacity to extract himself from slavery to sin and even from complicity with sin. So we're going to find that in Romans 5, 6, for example, in initiating its exegesis, it says, while we were still sick, in, a, in the appointed time, which I would translate as just in time, the idea is we're terminally ill, but just in time, the great physician steps in. Christ died for the ungodly. His death then not a substitutionary penalty for us, but the healing of our terminally incurable sickness. Micah 1.9 is where we're going to refer to it in the Old Testament. God talks about Samaria at the time. Her wound, which is the word plague, or the blow or the wound inflicted, is incurable. It says, and this wound has come to Judah. He's talking about a wound that has become incurable, a sickness that is terminal. The blow was dealt really with Adam's transgression, and the sin is passes into the whole world, and it becomes not through genetic transmission. But through the act of Adam's sin, sin became an apocalyptic power unleashed in all the world to control humankind, and no human being was able to extract himself or herself from it. And so the condition that arose was a, in God's eyes, a sickness that required Jesus, the physician. If you picture his death as dying our terminal death instead of us, or for us or on behalf of us. In fact, we're going to look at the key word here. And this is also very instrumental in our interpretation of Romans. We're going aiming small now in order to miss small, as the Patriot said. Hooper, H-U-P-E-R. Hooper or Hooper. And it means primarily, and we'll get to this, it means primarily not instead of or as a substitute for, it means on behalf of, in the sense of the person acting acts as a defender, as an advocate, as a benefactor. So when we have the many times Christ died for us, it's Hooper in many cases, and the word should be translated on behalf of, or for the benefit of. Remember the old Beatles song and Sergeant Pepper, I think it was? For the benefit of Mr. Kite, there will be a show tonight on trampoline. See, I even get Winsight from the Beatles channel. For the benefit of Mr. Kite, now, for the benefit of all mankind, Christ died. For the ungodly. And so... Hooper, we're going to find out, 
And I even studied the usage panel. The American Heritage College Dictionary has a usage panel, and they study language and how words develop. And in our present language, we have either in behalf of or on behalf of, and they found that 75% of the usage panel describes on behalf of as being the proper term and that it's something that is done in defense of someone else or for the benefit of someone else. So consider yourself Mr. Kite. So then Romans 5, 6 and 5, 8, while we were still sick and yet sinners, not just enslaved to sin, but complicit with it, responsibly complicit, or we could say irresponsibly complicit, Christ died. The picture is of terminally ill person with an incurable disease that all the doctors gave up on, but just in time, Christ died for the benefit of those who are terminally, incurably ill. Because the illness is incurable, the cure is inestimable, unimaginable. The horror of the death is not in any way lessened or diminished. In fact, the understanding of it is all the more increased than if it was considered merely a penalty paid. This is the demonstration of God's love, not his anger. God is love. We've read that a thousand times or heard it or bounced it off in our minds, but it's 1 John 4, 8, and it's in the context of this, and God demonstrated his love in sending his son to be the expiation of our sins that we may live through him. God sent his son because God is love, not because God is angry or was angry. We showed recently that Romans 4.15 says that the law produces wrath. And we found out that's not God's wrath, but man's. It produces anger. I don't see God angry at the crucifixion. I see people angry. Leaders, religious leaders angry. Crucify him. I see a mob agreeing with them. And the mob always agrees with the most egregious evils. Be careful that your thinking isn't developed by the mob today. Because the voices are so loud, they sometimes seem to be right. There was a voice hardly to be heard except for those close to the cross that said, Father, forgive them. And it's finished. And then a loud voice, a prayer that I repeat in my own way almost nightly lately. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. The finger of God then ripped the massive curtain between the holy place and the holiest of all 
in the temple to the astonishment of the priests therein ministering. Little did they know that the great high priest was ministering for their eternal salvation. Perhaps they did know when they saw that curtain torn after Christ's loud yell. This was a demonstration of God's love, not his anger. Jesus' death and resurrection was a restoration, a healing, a rectification of the sinful and sick condition of humanity and of creation at large. The principle, which is the basis and source, when I say principle here, I mean the basis and source of love, is not justice. It's the other way around. The principle of justice is love. If God were angry with sinners, then God in the flesh would certainly not eat and drink with them, forgive them radically and without seeming cause. A disabled man, Jesus simply said to him, your sins are forgiven. What did he do to deserve that? Nothing. But he said, since you're arguing about whether the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins on earth, get up, take up your bed and walk. Some people need a demonstration, a dramatic one. I've already had mine. Jesus said it this way. Those who seek for a sign, no sign will be given to them except for the sign of Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. So shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, with the emphasis on coming forth from it. Christ and him crucified is all the sign I need. What do you need? I'm asking myself, what else do you need? If, G- if God was an angry God... And Jesus is God in the flesh. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he said. And if he was angry, why would he welcome them at table fellowship and even rebuke those who would expel them? Jesus, then, was the one who equates sin with sickness and reveals himself as the physician. When was the last time you had a sick loved one and you were mad at him? How dare you be sick? I'm going to have to punish you. But I love you so much I'll be punished instead of you for your sickness. And there's a lot of people that think that there are sicknesses that God afflicts people with. And most of the time they are dead wrong. And if God ever allows it, It's only because if you find someone who is in peak fitness as an athlete, whether they kneel or stand at the anthem is no big deal. But if they are arrogant because they are at peak fitness and a celebrity, what need do they have of God? But someone who's disabled or laid low by addiction or illness, they know. How much more blessed are those who are laid low and humble than those who are held high and arrogant and uncaring about anything but their own careers. Just an example. 
Jesus equates sin with sickness and reveals himself as the physician. Moreover, when he said, I didn't come to call the righteous, we have to recall this word from the scripture. There is an unrighteous. I didn't come to call the righteous because there are none righteous. I came to call the sick who need a physician. I came to call sinners to repentance, a repentance that God himself effects, induces, evokes, creates, brings about. Meaning I've come to call all. You guys just don't know it yet. In fact, they wouldn't even know how bad their condition was until they looked back on their calling for the Messiah of God to be crucified. So Jesus' reference is uh, highly ironical. I didn't come to call the righteous. Christus Medicus, then. Here's some examples. I'm going to introduce this fairly slowly. I wasn't going to, but I, I think it's important to just dwell on each of these and savor each of these truths. Christus Medicus in the patristics, or the church fathers, the Greek church fathers, and I'm going to show you several things from Romelli's Apocatastasis, the Christian doctrine of Apocatastasis, which was, I'm finding my study to be something like what happened. We had a series of storms, as you know, and we have in front of our house, we have a little curb, but there's a dent in it. So water comes over by the, like a river into our lawn and down into the basement sometimes. So, I built this magnificent engineering feat. Bricks and rocks stuck up against that hole. But then the, the second problem was all the stuff falls from the trees in Oakmont and it gets into the water so it dams up and it, huge dams. And so I would go out and take a shovel and lift all this debris and it was astonishing how much of the water would flow away from the house. Thousands of gallons of it. And as I was thinking of that, I thought of a little analogy. This is kind of like what's happening in my study. There's some debris that needs to be removed. And when it does, the water of the word flows so much more beautifully. And while I wasn't teaching with you, some dams were breaking in my soul. Serious dams. And they're always, it's always doing that. We never get to the place where, oh, now I've got it all knocked. I've got the corner on the market. I've got a monopoly on theology. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. Besides, all our theology is wrapped up in Jesus. You see him, you see the Father. That's enough. But while I was reading Ilaria's book called The Christian Doctrine of Apocatastasis, and I think some of you saw it, a lot of dams were removed from my soul. But here's some examples that I found in her 800-plus page book of the church fathers. Let's start with Irenaeus. Irenaeus, quote from Romelli, Irenaeus cherishes the image of Christus Medicus, or Christ Physician. For this reason, Paul declares, God has encompassed all in incredulity in order to bestow mercy upon all. 
That, of course, is a reference to Romans 11.32. He says so with reference to humanity who disobeyed God and was chased away from eternal life, but then obtained mercy, receiving by means of the Son of God that adoption which was realized by him. The scripture references to Romans 11.28 to 32 significantly one of the most universalistic passages in Paul's soteriology, Ramelli goes on to say. Second quote, Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N, much maligned guy, now I know why. Condemned by the traditional church, now I know why. Ramelli almost single-handedly salvaged the reputation of this man, this theologian, Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N just as Fleming Rutledge has recently salvaged the reputation of Anselm, much maligned by theologians. Origen wrote, about Origen, she wrote this, the demons and Satan himself, as well as humans, will always maintain their free will, but they will be saved because the force of Christ's cross is so great as to be sufficient to save even them. This salvation will take place not automatically or necessarily, but through conversion, through a healing performed by Christ in his capacity as the supreme physician. And she goes on to say this is a characteristic that Clement, C-L-E-M-E-N-T, that is Clement of Alexandria, too loved to ascribe to Christ and whose relevance to Clement's and Origen's doctrine of apocatastasis is all too evident. Now we know that the the reverse of this, the doctrine of hell or God torturing people after death is a demonic doctrine, which is why, and again, I'm only going to suggest this and teach it slowly. Matthew 8:29. When demons spoke through a man, they said to Jesus, "O son of the most high," they said, "Have you come to torture us before the time?" meaning we know that there's going to be a time when you'll come to torture us. That's not God's truth. That's demonic doctrine. That's what they think. That's why Jesus said, shut up. Because they were actually spouting a doctrine that when he comes, he's going to torture demons, fallen angels. When he comes, he's also going to torture unbelievers. Look at all the art from the medieval times and Dante's Inferno and all the pictures of hell and all that stuff. It's demonic. Demons are related to hell as they are in mythology, but not for the same reasons. Demons are related to hell because they invented the doctrine. And Plato, one of the pagan philosophers, put it forward in three of his most major works. We've studied that. Phaedo, Gorges, and Republic, all of them. He called it, in fact, oddly enough, immortal torture and death for those who are incurable sinners. Couldn't see a cure for the incurable. And recently in studying the spirit of the rainforest, a famous shaman tells his story. He has a wonderful Pauline experience. He had his own road to Damascus experience, a shaman in Venezuela of the Yamamamo tribe called simply Jungle Man by himself because he didn't want to give his true name. But 
he had an experience in which he saw the light, he said, of a thousand suns. And there was this God named Yai Pada who had come to visit men and who as God as creator and was a spirit man who came to visit mankind and died for mankind to redeem all mankind. And of the spirits, which I don't want to speak too much of because I've seen this side of life and I don't want to ever see it again. The spirits told him and all the other shamans and the people in their villages that this spirit that they were deadly afraid of, the Christian missionaries spirit, Christ, was so-called an unfriendly spirit who would send them to a fiery pit after death. Who developed that doctrine? The demon spirits that this shaman was possessed with. That's why I say there's scriptural verification. Have you come to torture us? God the torturer is a little bit different from God the physician. That's why Jesus said, shut up. If Jesus was to visit many of our pulpits today with preachers teaching on hell, he would stand up and say, shut up. Even if you think your handkerchief can heal people. Even if you think that by selling your tapes, you're going to make the Christian church realize the kingdom of God and bring the coming of Jesus all the sooner. Shut up. He might even say, shut the hell up. It is a doctrine of demons, and didn't Paul predict in 1 Timothy 4.1 that people would stop giving attentiveness to the truth and turn their attention instead to doctrines of demons? One of them is the doctrine that at the appointed time, the last judgment, God will come to torture fallen angels and human beings in an immortal hell. How about Isaac of Nineveh? Much later... For Isaac, just as for Origen, as well as Gregory Nissen, N-Y-S-S-E-N, and many fathers, Christ is the physician of souls. Again, regarding Origen, Ramelli writes this, neither does Origen maintain that there will be a new fall after the apocatastasis. In other words, they asked, well, can mankind fall again after the restoration of all things? But Origen maintains that there will not be a new fall after the apocatastasis in his polemic with the middle Platonist with a Platonic scholar named Celsus called Contra Celsum. He is speaking of Christ Logos as a doctor of souls since, Origen writes, the Logos is more powerful than any illness or evil of the soul. How about Eusebius? We studied him in Bible college. Everyone does who studies church history. He was a church historian. Eusebius, E-U-S-E-B-I-U-S. On page 326 of Romelli's book, after showing a passage in which Eusebius' eschatological universalism and doctrine of apocatastasis is extremely clear, she says, and quotes him as writing that Christ, quote, is the common savior of absolutely all. That Eusebius is evidently drawing on the tradition of Christ physician, dear to Clement of Alexandria and Origen, both supporters of the doctrine of apocatastasis. We know again, just to remind you, apocatastasis comes from Acts chapter 3, verse 21. God, through the mouths of all the prophets, 
from the time immemorial. That means every prophet without exception. God spoke through them about apocatastasis panton, universal restoration. That's enough to seal it for me. But there's a few thousand other verses that help. How about Evagoras Ponticus? He lived from 345 A.D. to about 399 A.D. Quote, he followed in Clement's footsteps in seeing Christ as the infallible physician of souls, adding that Evagrius, E-V-A-G-R-I-U-S, like Origen and Nissen, Gregory of Nyssa, infers the eschatological disappearance of all evil. How about John Cassian from 360 to 430 A.D. he lived? He wrote that Christ's grace calls everyone without exception. Christ's grace calls everyone without exception. Now the call there is what we call an efficacious call. It works. It affects repentance. And then... He goes on to say, John Cassian, C-A-S-S-I-A-N, God has not created death and does not rejoice in the destruction of any living being. Ramelli then adds, in this connection, Cassian introduces the epinoia, or the principle of Christ as healer and physician, which was so dear to Clement and Origen and was used by them in support of apocatastasis. Now, this is the third gear I'm going to shift into now, and we'll close with it. Might not get to fourth gear. Our word, hooper. It's a preposition with both the genitive and accusative, and with the genitive it means for, in behalf of, that's an old lexicon, on behalf of is a better way to say it now, according to 75% of the usage panel of the American College Heritage College Dictionary, which I kind of go by. Hooper means on behalf of and for the sake of in Romans 5, 6 through 8. It's also used that way in Hebrews 2, 9. And it also can be used with the genitive of a thing in behalf of. And it can be variously translated. In other words, hooper hamartian, on behalf of sins, means in order to remove the sins. Christ died for our sins. Does that mean he was penalized for them, or did he die to simply take them away? If he's the physician, he takes them away. Now, I'm not going to just blow up your cherished doctrines here. Not today. The fuse is lit, though. And like the kids say, and adults who try to be kids because they think they're appealing to kids by saying what kids say, which only makes kids sick, it's lit. You ever see an adult try to be like a kid? They talk, and the kids are going like this. There's dad trying to be one of us. Dad, be dad. You'll be cool when they're older and find out what you had to go through because of them. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, no, I'm not. So in Galatians 1, 4, Christ died for sins means in order to remove the sins. It pictures him as a benefactor. It pictures him as defender. He is our advocate. 
If anyone sins, let him know that he has an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Propitiation has been defined as appeasement from God's wrath, but that's not what it means. If anything, it's the satisfaction of God's love, not the appeasement of his anger. What can I do to save these people? Then let's do it. Galatians 1.4, Hebrews 7.27, Hebrews, as Brian brought it in brilliantly, Hebrews brings, is brought into the picture in 7.27 and 10.12. Paul says frequently that Christ died for us, therefore, and hooper is the word translated as for. Once again, in consulting my second favorite book, the American Heritage College Dictionary, fifth edition, the word on behalf of means for the benefit of, on behalf of, as an agent, on the part of, and again, as the usage panel, they brought forth a sentence. Listen to this sentence, and you get the sense of what this word hooper means in the Greek text. The sentence is this. After sitting silently, as one complaint after another was raised, he finally spoke up in behalf of his kid's coach. It says, in behalf of, on behalf of. The usage panel is a panel of judges on how you define words or use words. 75% of this usage panel said on behalf of is better than in behalf of. And I, I tend to see, so I see on behalf of. Christ died on behalf of us as a benefactor for us, as a defender. After the accusers have come against this coach, finally a parent stands up and says, maybe he says something, well, he had to be tough on the kids so they could grow up. Or he had to be, give them a disciplined training so that they would win this year. Or he had to do this or he had to do this. Somebody stood up and defended him. And so speaking on behalf of someone, speaking in their benefit, acting on their behalf, acting in defense of. So the spokesman here is a defender. It's a better fit. Now, you have the word instead of sometimes here in substitution, but it actually is a definition that's influenced by an already held theology of penal substitution. If God is retributive, then his son had to be punished because God was angry at us. So God is effectively saving you from himself because he's really an angry God. I hate to say it, but Jonathan Edwards had it dead wrong. In fact, he was speaking for the other side. You'd almost have to say, get behind me, Satan. This is not to malign the character of that revivalist because he had other messages too, and I hope he got a couple good ones in there somewhere. So then, Look at Romans 5. We're prepared now. You see, this is all preparation for exegesis. It all helps. And we'll close with this. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, it says. But the word is asthenes. A-S-T-H-E-N-E-S. Asthenes. 
A-S-T-H-E-N, Ada, E-S. Asthenes. In Luke 10, 9, it speaks of someone who's sick. Acts 4, 9. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, it talks about many sleep, many are sick, many are weak and sick. Homardiologically, or speaking in terms of the doctrine of sin, and anthropologically, speaking in terms of man, this word weak, or asthenes, speaks of total depravity, which is complete sin-induced inability to be saved or liberated from slavery to sin and the impulsive desire of the flesh and out from under the reign of death. So asthenes here in Romans 5, 6 means powerlessness associated with being sick. Sometimes this actually means sick. So that's why I would, the sense of this is while we were terminally, incurably ill, just in time, Christ died for the ungodly. Ungodliness and weakness or sickness are joined here. And so for while we were yet sick, meaning desperately sick, Christ died. Now this goes on to say, and I'm, I'm going to abbreviate because I want to hold the rest of this for weeks to come, but in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his kind of love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. In 5.9, while we were still his enemies, we were reconciled to him. How much more will we be saved by his life if we were justified by his blood? You get a picture of Jesus Christ entering into the human condition, becoming flesh, then becoming sin, to heal and to save, to defend and to advocate, to be a savior. This actually has the power to psychologically transform people's minds and cure their souls. Because nothing is worse for the soul than the abiding, nagging thought in the back of your mind that God is angry with you somehow. That he's an angry God. And this blocks your view. It's a, it's a dam, D-A-M, and it's a damn shame. So I'm kicking the dam down so the water of the river of life can flow into our souls. But here's another, so here's the translation, Romans 5, 6. For while we were still desperately sick or terminally ill, Christ died just in time on behalf of the ungodly, equating ungodly with sick. Christ died for the ungodly. Now, Mrs. Messick, Jennifer, did a study once on what's the central verse in Romans? Now, if you go by the numbers, I think it's 217, right, on one side? Two, there's, if there's 435 verses in Romans, there's 217 on one side and 217 on another side of Romans 831. So if you want to talk about numerical verses, Romans 831 is the beating heart of Romans. You know what it says there? God is for us. And the word is hooper. God 
is for us. You say, no, it says for if God is for us. The if is called a fulfilled first class condition of if, which means it's obviously assumed to be true. Emphatically, God is for us. What's the living center, the beating heart? God is for us. Then it says, then who can be against us? And the word against is kata. So we have a definite oppositional contrast here. Huper and kata. It doesn't say God is instead of us. It says God is for us. If God is for us on behalf of us, our defender, our advocate, our savior, our healer, our victor, if Christ is all these things, if God is for us, then who can be against us? The word kata, the opposites here are huper and kata. And kata means against or in opposition to. So the opposite, huper, has to be for or on behalf of. But then it gives way to Romans 8.32. God did not spare his son. And that refers back to what? Abraham offering Isaac. We've been studying Abraham in the middle week. And yeah, I've been here. In the middle week services in Romans 4, he offers Isaac and he knows that God has a plan. So Isaac says, well, where is the lamb for sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. But then they don't see a lamb in the thicket. They see a ram in the thicket, which is offered instead of Isaac, which means what? It means the lamb has yet to be found. And the lamb is found when Jesus Christ comes on the scene. And John says, look, there's the lamb of God who's punished instead of us because God's really ticked. No. Look, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world takes it away. What do you do, doctor? What are you going to do with my sickness? They're going to take it away. How are you going to take it away? Well, there's only one way. It's for me to endure that sickness, to become that sickness, to become sin, so that you can become the righteousness of God in me. The heart of the heart of the heart. I can almost hear it beating. Beating. There's a lamb at the heart of Romans. God didn't spare his son because he's the lamb for Isaac in whom the seed would be called. He's the lamb for all mankind. He's the lamb takes away. And guess what the word take away is? I could go on for hours. I'm not going to. I'm almost done. The word is Iro, A-I-R-O. It means to take up and away. Picture him going up to the cross, lifted up. When he goes up, he goes up with the sins of the world, which he takes away. When he's lifted up, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all to myself. I'll draw irresistibly, that means, all to myself, like fish in a dragnet. Resist, if you will. Little fishy. I'll drag all to myself, the healer, Christ the physician. He takes them up, takes them away. 
Hebrews 9.26. Christ in the end of the ages. Suntaleia, meaning the end of one age and the beginning of another. The clash of the ages. The clash of the eons. At the clash or the crisis of the eons, Christ appeared to take away sin. Take away. Take away. Remove is the word. Remove. Take away. Remove. Sin by the offering of himself. Brought out beautifully by her. H-U-R, Brian. And his teaching as well as Craig's are out on the information table. Inclusio, finito, it is finished. You may go.